Genesis in your Bibles. God bless you for your faithfulness. And this is through the Word of God, the Scriptures, is how our lives are changed. Obviously, and so, and how we learn more about God and see the face of Christ and be changed from glory to glory. Genesis 13. You'll notice the last verse we left off last time says, Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. And so begins Abram's life of faith. He left Ur. He sojourned, unfortunately, for a while down in Egypt. He has returned now to Bethel, which means the house of God, and to Hebron. He said goodbye to Lot, who chose Sodom, and now he and Sarah are living and laboring and really kind of waiting for the promised son. And what happens in life during this time? It's what happens to us in life during these times. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisan, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom. In other words, there's a war. That's what happens in life. There's a conflict. This is a war that doesn't involve Abram. It does not involve his property. It's none of his business, except, of course, the first line of verse 2 says that they attacked Sodom. And as you know, living in Sodom was Abraham's nephew, Lot, and Lot's household. These were people he loved. These were people he felt responsible for. And it is with that backstory that something is about to happen that makes this portion of Scripture one of the most foundational narratives in this foundational book, one of the most foundational in all the Bible. And therefore, and obviously one of the most important for you and me tonight. And so let's pray. Father, please help us to understand your word, this narrative, this text. You have told us that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. And we know this is. And we need your help in that end. Speak to us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. When you keep on reading here in Genesis 14, you will see very soon, you will learn that there are ten kings by name listed in this text. One of them, of course, not named until the very end. He is called the King of Righteousness. These kings are, interestingly, a sort of cameo of all of human history in that all of the conflicts and all of the battles and all the alliances that will one day end with the king of righteousness indeed, they're all pictured right here. And what happens in this text? Well, basic, basically and predictably, there's an insurrection in this valley. The five cities of the plain have this alliance. They get together and they announce that they are no longer going to pay tribute taxes to the Elamites. And so if you read this coalition force is made up of the kings of the east. They have amassed this pretty good army, and they're marching toward the west. So you have four kings of the east and five kings of the plain. And you know, it really sounds remarkably up to date, and especially when you realize that the kings of the east are present-day Iraq and Iran, and the kings of the west are present-day Jordan and Palestine and so on. And you know, say this, let me say this, none of this would even be here in the Bible. None of it would be included, this information about wars. They happen all over and all the time. 
But if it weren't for the fact that in the background of this political upheaval, there are believers. In fact, two believers. Chapter 14, verse 11 says, They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Uh Uh-oh. So in the midst of this war and what followed after it, they, they sacked the city of Sodom. And let me say it again, this wouldn't even be included in the Bible necessarily, not recorded here, if it weren't for the fact that a man named Lot had his eyes, set his eyes before this on a place called Sodom. So it's been sacked and Lot has been taken and what's Abram going to do? Well, without disputing what he should or shouldn't do tonight, it's not the purpose of this, here's what he actually did. Verse 13, and there came one that had escaped And told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Anar, and he, these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, it's his nephew, but they're brothers, as it were, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318 of them, and pursued them unto Dan. You ever watch the old Bonanza series with Ben Cartwright? Some rustler steals his cattle or shoots one of his hired hands, one of his cowboys, and it's over across the Ponderosa. So Ben's sitting there and he's eating dinner and someone comes in and gets word about this and immediately he just just looks over at Adam and his son Hoss and little Joe and immediately they, you know, open up the gun rack and they start arming themselves and the hired hands and they jump on their horses. They're going to go get him. By the way, Ansley, ask me if I'm a horse. Nay. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I don't know. I apologize. So they they get on their horses and they go. And you know, Abram is basically Ben Cartwright in this story. He throws open the sword rack and 318... The Bible gives us the number. It's quite a household. These are the armed train men, it says. And they, they head out. And if you read the text carefully, you'll see that he divided his men. That he flanks the enemy. He uses basic wartime strategy. And that he first attacks with might, and then he pursues the shaken, the fleeing ones in the army. And these kings are running, as he knew they would, all the way north to Dan. And it was an amazing, incredible victory. And the result of it is verse 16. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. This was essentially a liberation. This was a rescue mission, if you will. There is no way that Abram could have ever hoped or dreamed for a better outcome than this, including what happens next. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. Now, wait a minute. You have two kings here. Both of these kings are pleased with what Abraham, Abram at the time, has done. He didn't just rescue Lot and all their wives and their daughters. He also eliminated this eastern threat for a good long time. 
So he's a bit of a hero, if you will. And the king of Sodom, that's not difficult to see. He's a very worldly, wicked leader who's just a political uh, man wanting to raise his power, increase his power. He's a little dictator. The question is, who's the king of Salem? Now, Salem, as you know, means peace. It's the same word that's used in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And as we read, his name is Melchizedek. That means king of righteousness. And you may have noticed that, A, what the king gives to Abraham, and B, what he's acting as toward Abraham. Verse 18, and, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. Now, you have to admit, this, guy's, this man is very mysterious. Bread and wine are the elements of communion, the cross, and of course, the Levitical priesthood wouldn't even exist for hundreds of years after this. So that it says here, if he's what it says, which is a priest of the Most High God, at least we know he's not one after the order of Aaron, the high priest. Well, that's not all. Verse 19. And he, Melchizedek, blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Interesting phrase, never used before in the Bible. Remember it for a moment. Melchizedek uses it here. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now think about that for a moment. Obviously, as the one giving the blessing and receiving the tithes, Melchizedek is Abram's spiritual leader here. And that's pretty amazing when you remember that Abram is the father of the faithful. That he's, quote, the friend of God. So, Abram, returning from this great victory, is reminded by Melchizedek of some truths. He's humbled, he gives tithes, he receives a blessing, and he recognizes that God's revelation isn't just limited to him, to Abram alone. And it never was. So what happens? Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons... And take the goods to thyself. You know, temptation always follows times of victory, as we've already seen. So he's tempting him here. You say, how so? We'll keep reading. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Where did he learn that title? Because that taught it to him. Right back there in verse 19. I've lifted, I've sworn, I've made an oath. So that you see what's happening here. This time that he's spending, Abram with Melchizedek, after this great victory, was a time where he was reminded by God's man, God's priest, as you will, that Abraham belonged to God, that Abraham's victory was because of God. He says, you know, the Lord did this to you. Giving tithes is only a recognition that all 100% belongs to God. There's an old expression that says, use the gold, but don't touch the glory. This time that he spent with Melchizedek reminded this man, vulnerable now as you always are after great victory of pride and so forth, Abraham, not to touch the glory. And so it's during this time that Abram says, I raised my hand to the most high God. I made a promise. Verse 23, that, that I will not take from a thread 
even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldst say, I have made Abram rich. Save or accept only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eschol, Mamre, let them take their portion. In other words, here it is. Abram looks temptation in the face, and, and he says, no. I don't want your money, your gold, and none of it. And the reason he could do that is because before this offer of compromise was made, Abram had just spent some time in church. He just spent some time getting his perspective right, being refreshed in his relationship with God, finding there an attitude of worship, gratitude, humility, and there Abraham, Abram was fortified. It's one of the reasons God says not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Now, if you think about it, Bera, that's the name of the king of Sodom. The name Bera means son of evil. So you have king of Sodom, Satan. You have king of Salem, Christ. Always, always there has been, there will be this spiritual warfare. And notice again, by the way, what that offer was. Go back to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. You give me the souls, he says, and I'll give you the spoils. Man, that has always been Satan's offer. And frankly, it's the mission statement of a lot of prosperity preachers. I don't really care about the men. I just want their money. They're willing to sell out people, even the salvation of people, long as they make lots and lots of money. Which brings us to what we noted at the beginning of this message, because again, what we're seeing here is this story. It's a backstory. This, beloved, is the context of one of the most foundational narratives in all of Scripture. Think about Abram the next day after this victory, okay? Matter of fact, think about this man the next week after this victory or the next month because all of these temptations to pride and ego and riches and power, they didn't just end when he left Melchizedek. So it says this, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, folks, let me just say this. Um, because you need to understand, we need to understand that there is no doubt whatsoever that this chapter, this 15th chapter of the book of Genesis is one of the, honestly, three most important texts in the entire Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it is quoted in three of the most important chapters of the New Testament. Romans 4.1 quotes Genesis 15. Galatians 3.6 quotes Genesis 15. James 23 quotes Genesis 15. And of course, King David in Psalm, that great Psalm 32 and Psalm 106 also quote Genesis 15. And the reason is that in this unfolding plan of God that we're reading as the foundational book of all the Bible, here at the very beginning of it all, those initial shadows that were given to Eve in Genesis and also to Noah, they are now beginning 
They're beginning to take shape. Look at verse 2. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. In other words, look, Abraham realizes that he's getting old. He also recognizes it's a dangerous world. There's war. People die. People died in this war. Yet he remembers the promise. You know, he's saying, Lord, I'm childless. You re I remember the promise way back at Ur, but I'm not getting any younger. So he refers to Eliezer. Eliezer, who, according to the Code of Hammurabi, at the time would be the heir to all of Abraham's wealth. So he's thinking, is this what you have in mind? Is this servant the one who's going to be the heir? And God answers him. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bow shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell, number the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Follow this. God says, Abram, sort of like, take my hand, Follow me outside into the night sky. There's no light pollution in those places in those days. And he says, look out at the stars. I'm telling you, that's what I'm going to do with your seed. Now think about that because, you know, we read earlier and already he has told Abraham that his seed would be, quote, as the dust of the earth, as the sands of the sea. But Abraham, Abram has two kinds of children. Those who are Abraham's children in the flesh, the dust of the ground, and those who are Abraham's children by faith, the stars in the sky. Galatians 3, 7 says, Know ye, therefore, that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So it's amazing. Abraham now could look anywhere down below and he'd be reminded, and anywhere up below, above at the sky, and he'd be reminded of the promises of both sons of Abraham. What happens? Verse 6. And Abraham, he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. If you've never circled that verse, underlined that verse, highlighted that verse, that's one of the single most important statements in all of the Bible. And he counted it unto him for righteousness. We were talking a few weeks ago about when it was that Abraham got saved. And certainly when Abraham believed God, had faith, and he left the Ur of the Chaldees, that was faith. His father was a part of that family. But, you know, it's really this text that is quoted over and over again in the New Testament. When Abraham believed God and what God specifically said here about the seed, the same promise that he gave to Eve, by the way, in Genesis, the seed of a woman. When Abraham believed in spite of his age that all nations would be blessed by his son, then his faith was counted for righteousness. He believed in God, but now he believes God. Now don't miss this. Verse 7. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, 
whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? You know, Abraham's just like us. He's not a superstar. He ain't perfect. Here's my promise, God says, and, and Abraham's response is, how will I know? How will I know that I'm, this is going to happen? I believe you, but I'm old. My girl's old, and I have no child. I believe you, but is there something? Is there something that I can think of that I can do or you can do or remember so as to know what you say? Be reminded maybe that that you're going to, to do all of this. And beloved, what happens next, you must not miss. If you haven't listened to anything other than his faith was imputed, righteous was imputed, please hear this. Verse 9, and he said unto him, so God didn't rebuke him. He doesn't strike him down. He's a patient, long-suffering God. He answers him. I'm going to tell you how you can remember. And he said unto him, take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, wait a minute. God is calling for sacrifice. You'll see that in a minute. He's calling for a blood sacrifice. Does God always insist on going back to Calvary? Does the Lord always go right back to the cross? Because this is not going to be pleasant for Abraham. Notice what happens, verse 10. And he took unto him all of these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. Now, can I ask you a question? How did Abraham know to do that? God didn't tell him to do that. He, he cut them in half and he divided them. In a lot of sources, my favorite one was David Barron's book called The Order of the Priesthood. You will find that in the Code in the Times of Hammurabi, the way that, that Eastern ancients would sign a contract, seal the contract, if you will, was that an animal was to be slain, divided right down the middle. Half of the animal would be placed over here, and the other half would be placed over here. And then to seal that contract, both parties would walk through the midst of it, and they would pledge their very lives, their very blood, to the fulfillment of whatever contract they were making. Abraham recognizes what God is doing here. And in fact, I'm going to read to you from the book of Jeremiah, because God refers to this centuries after this, to this practice. God says, I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they have made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. So that's the covenant. The covenant is, Just as this animal is split in half, we're going to make a promise. And if you don't keep your side of it, it's it's may God do to thee as we have done to this animal. It's a lot more serious. You know, we we have covenants today and contracts. I do weddings all the time and I take a sheet of paper and she signs it and he signs it, the bride and the groom. And then two witnesses sign it and then I sign it. Those signatures is the signature of the covenant, of the contract. So, you know, that's kind of easy. That's wimpy compared to what these were. 
If you break it, there's consequences in our society, but you don't get cut in half. So this is a remarkable thing. God says, Abram, I want you to do this, and he, he gives this unusual list of animals that, you, that Abraham couldn't possibly quite understand until centuries later in the Levitical law, we completely understand. Verse 11, and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That's interesting. You ever wonder why God put that little statement in there? I have. I've thought about it many times. Abram has just obeyed the instructions of God, and while waiting for the next word, whatever God says to do, because, you know, he, the contract is, in those days, you walk, both parties walk through the midst. He's horrified because these, these unclean birds are coming, and they're going to start taking it away, ruining the whole thing. It's a very ominous sign, so to speak. And, you know, in the next couple of verses, God sort of shows us a spiritual application to this. Satan hates this covenant. The world, like birds of prey, are always trying to ruin and oppose this covenant. In fact, as our next chapter shows, the whole world will oppose it to the very, very end, if you were here for our Revelation series. So Adam chases them away. He felt that was his duty. And then God does a remarkable, most significant thing. Now remember, in the ancient covenant, as God referred to it in Jeremiah, the blood covenant, it was required that both parties pass through the midst of those sacrifices, right? So just picture in your mind what Abram's done. He's taking the heifer, put half over here and half over here. He is taking the goat, half over here, half over here. He's taking the ram, half over here, half over here. And then with the dove and the pigeon, one over here and one over here. So you have it like this aisle. Abram's on that end, and he, he's waiting on what God wants him to do because he's supposed to pass through it with God. This was making covenant in the ancient world, and I'll say it again, it was a lot stricter than any kind of covenant we have in our society today. If you break it, it means death. So they would walk through the midst together. When they got through the midst, they would usually exchange something. They might exchange belts or weapons. They would strike hands. They would usually give a blessing. They would eat a covenant meal. Oftentimes, they would exchange names. They would add that other person's name to their surname and vice versa. And all of this, Abram was prepared to do. He was waiting, whatever God instructed him to do. But now God is going to take this familiar signing of the contract, this covenant that everybody knew about, and he was going to alter it dramatically for reason. Verse 12, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. So now he's out, and he's terrified, like night dreams nightmares but he's out verse 17 and it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces you're going to find out if you look at those verse those all those words the smoking furnace and the burning lamp those are the exact same hebrew words that are used later at mount zion and with a fire pillar of fire 
Exact same words. So what's happening here? Abraham's not coming through the middle, but this fire is. This burning light and lamp. Verse 18 says, In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. All right. Fire, the symbol, Old Testament symbol of God's holiness, his presence, also his judgment. You can see that while Abraham was out, while he is sleeping, if you will, God alone, God alone passes through the midst of the sacrifices. There's a verse in Hebrews 6 that refers to this moment. Most of you know it. He says that God, who could swear by no greater, swear by himself. That means that the covenant, that the promise, did not depend upon Abraham. So that as far as the certainty of its fulfillment is concerned, it is completely unilateral. I'm reminded when I read about the darkness coming on. And, and you just think for a minute, if, if the picture that God is giving him here, using that particular contract, God is saying to Abram, you ask me a question. How do I know? Here's my promise. I'll pass through the sacrifices. I'm not asking you to split yourself in half if it's broken. I'm telling you that I will be separated if it's broken. Wait a minute. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Sixth hour of total darkness. Separation from God and man. What was God saying to Abram? Abram, trust me. I do the saving. And because your righteousness was imputed to you just because you believed me, because you had faith, I do the saving. Abram will have his part to keep. Yes, he will. But God will have his. The difference is this. Even if Abram is not faithful... Even if he trips and falls, only God passed through the midst. Only God signed, if you will, the contract. Only God ratified the agreement so that in no way did the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant depend upon Abram being perfect. And you know what? It's a good thing because in the very next chapter, he takes Hagar. And they have a son called Ishmael. And his lack of faith still resonates to this very night. I'll say it again, beloved. Inside, this is the foundation, right? This verse where it says that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, verse 6, that's the key of the book of Romans and Galatians. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. In salvation, God does the saving. Jesus hung on the cross alone. And God does the keeping. Look at chapter 17 for a minute, would you? Look at verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Now, follow this. This is amazing. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. 
for a father of many nations have I made thee. Think about that. Remember the exchanging, the exchanging of names? You'll notice that two letters are added to Abram's name. A-H in the English. And you know what they represent. Two of the most important sacred letters in the Hebrew part of the J-A-H. Yah. The Jews believe that those two letters together represented the very breath, ha, the very breath of God, the ah sound. Chapter 17, verse 15. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall her name be. You see, folks, when God created man, he breathed into him, ah, the breath of life. It was his breath. In the New Testament, Jesus said that man has to be, must be born again. Born of the water, that's the physical, that's the first birth, and born of the spirit. The word spirit there is pneuma, uh, pneumatic, breath, air. It is the Holy Spirit of God, the holy breath of God, that regenerates us when we become his son, his child. And the way that God puts his name into Abram's is by putting a symbol of his very breath right in the middle of Abraham. Did God take Abraham's name to himself as the exchange? Let's just say this. From this time forward, he would be called the God of Abraham. Ever since I got saved at the age of 12, I have known that I am a son of of God, that I'm one of his own. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Wow. God's not ashamed of me. I'm, I'm way worse than Abraham in stumbling and faltering. Isaiah 49.16, Behold, I am engraved you in the palm of my hands. Revelation 3.12, I will write thee Write on him the name of God. There's the exchange. And it all goes back to this imputed righteousness in chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. When I was 14 years old, I remember I was struggling with my faith. Not a lot, just a little bit. We were about to move down here. And... I guess not my faith, my position. And I remember I went to Sand Mountain Bible Camp. And there was a Cherokee Indian who spoke. He was 19 years of age. He'd gotten saved when he was about 16. And he was, even as a 14, 15-year-old, drunk and gotten saved. His life was changed. He was a powerful evangelist, even at 19. And I remember he got up there and he led us in a song. I never heard it before. I haven't hardly heard it since. Some of you know it. But the little chorus says, Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. The best thing in my life I ever did do, oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do was to take off the old robe and put on the new. The old robe was dirty, all tattered and torn. The new robe was spotless, had never been worn. And the best thing in my life I ever did do was to take off the old robe and put on the new. That song resonated with me all week long, and I thought, that's it. It's not my robe, it's the righteous the robe of Christ's righteousness, wherewith I can come boldly into the throne of God. Imagine Abraham seeing this. As we said before, it's like the sun just coming up, the morning horizon. You just see a little more and a little more, and Abraham is now getting a little more than Noah had. Imagine him seeing this. 
Imagine you and I, beloved, knowing all of this. How can any of us ever walk out those doors and doubt the promises of God? And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that salvation is the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that in your great wisdom, it is by faith that man is justified, by faith that we receive imputed righteousness, by faith that we are changed from glory to glory. And that because of that change, Father, and that new nature you have given us, we can, we can live for you holy, righteous, godly lives that testify, that testify in the sight of all that there has been a miracle inside of us, the new birth. We love you tonight and thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.